Great. Um, thanks very much, and thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here, um, not just for the lecture series, but particularly privileged to give the first lecture. So I don't have anyone to compare to, so I, I benefit from I benefit from low expectations, hopefully. Um, and it's really great just to be able to come to Oxford and, and talk about drug issues. Um, as you would have heard from my bio, I've done a lot of work in drug use and drug policy, um, which I always sort of contextualized from the beginning as being a bit interesting because on some level I really don't have any interest in drug policy at all. Um, but rather I've had to become acquainted or um, familiar or able to engage in drug policy um, because drug policy is so integrally inter intertwined with issues I do care about. Um, my background is really in prisoners' rights work, and that's sort of what my main political interest is. Uh, I started out my career in the early 90s in Toronto doing HIV um, counseling and education in prisons and doing advocacy for prisoners living with HIV. Uh, and it was out of that kind of initial period of my career, um, working with people in prison, people who are living with HIV, where you inevitably come up right away with issues of drug use, drug injecting. Um, on the one hand, because a large majority of the people I was working with and providing support services for were either people who injected drugs or were people who were in prison based upon offenses or convictions related to drug use. So right away, you know, I was, I was coming to it as a prisoner's rights advocate and a health advocate, uh, and immediately I had to come to grips with issues around drug policy, drug laws, and the effects that these have on public health, on criminal justice issues, on social exclusion, on racism, on various institutions of power and how they affect communities that are, are marginalized in a society. Um, and that's kind of continued, I suppose. I moved, I left Canada in 2000 and moved to Ireland, um, where I wound up as the executive director of the Irish Penal Reform Trust, which is the national prisoners' rights organization in Ireland. And again, was immediately brought into issues around drug policy, around harm reduction in prisons, and did a lot of advocacy on access to health in prisons, which of course has led me now to Harm Reduction International, which is one of the main international non-governmental organizations working on harm reduction issues more broadly. So even though my particular interest is on criminal justice issues, law reform, um, prisoners' rights, um, Harm Reduction International works much more broadly around harm reduction um, inside prisons, outside prisons, primarily at the international level. Um, so that's kind of the context um, for the, what I'll be talking about today. I understand there's probably a mix of disciplines in the audience, which is good. So hopefully I'll be able to discuss and maybe in the question and answers talk from a position of having been a service provider, having worked on national and international policy and law, um, and having sort of a background both in sociology and in, and in international law. So hopefully there's a bit there for everyone, um, or at least you'll be able to tell me things that I'll be able to get for all my different hats. Um, basically, for the next half hour, I suppose, I want to sort of address three general questions. Um, I want to talk about what is harm reduction for people who aren't familiar with it, and forgive me if I get a bit basic, uh, because it's, it is a term that people are maybe familiar with, but maybe are less familiar with why we do harm reduction. 
Uh, I'm going to talk a bit about why harm reduction is controversial. Um, I don't think it should be controversial, but it is almost everywhere. Um, and then finally, I'm going to talk a bit about international law and talk about the relationship between international human rights law and international drug control law um, and use harm reduction as an example of sitting kind of in the nexus between those two bodies of law and really in many ways shows the tension between human rights on one hand and drug control on the other. In terms of what harm reduction is, I mean, harm reduction as a term refers to policies and programs and practices uh, that aim to reduce the harms associated with the use of drugs. Um, and the important aspect around harm reduction is, as policy interventions, as health services, they're intended for people who are active drug users. So they don't necessitate that people either stop using drugs or even reduce using drugs. Um, their, harm, their health services or policy structures um, that are intended for the reality of people continuing to use drugs. So, for example, when I was doing um, health advocacy in prisons, um, I was always very adamant that my expertise as a frontline service provider was working with people who were active drug users. So if people wanted to try to get drug treatment or come off drugs or become drug-free, that was perfectly fine. But my thing was I would refer them to someone who did that because that wasn't what my expertise was. My expertise was how do I help people improve their health if they're going to be injecting or using other kinds of drugs. And if they want to become drug-free, that's fine. I'll refer you to a service that does that. That wasn't what my service specialized in. So the defining features of a harm reduction approach are on the prevention of the harm rather than on the prevention of the drug use itself. And as I say, the focus is on people who continue to use drugs, either because they choose to continue to use drugs or for a variety of reasons they may be unwilling or unable to stop using drugs. Uh, so it's a very non-judgmental approach in that regard. Um, as I say, when I was doing prison work, I used to do trainings with other AIDS organizations and they would talk about, you know, we'd talk about, oh, well, you know, sort of the barriers working with drug users. And I was sort of like, well, everyone I work with is a drug user. So, I mean, that was part and parcel of the, of the clientele and the community we worked with. Um, I mean, harm reduction's been around for a long time, and you can see it over the decades reflected in different ways. Um, but it really came into prominence, I suppose, as an area of public policy within the context of HIV in the 1980s. Um, you know, there were explosions of HIV infection in many countries of the world, including the UK, um, and sharing of injecting equipment, sharing of syringes for injecting drug use was found quickly to be a very efficient way of transmitting the HIV viruses. And we have examples early on in the UK, in Scotland, of cities where networks of people who inject drugs, we see outbreaks of, of HIV amongst people and groups of people who are sharing syringes. And so a number of countries very early on decided to adopt a harm reduction approach, um, recognizing that preventing HIV was a much more immediate and achievable goal than was preventing the use of drugs. Um, so needle and syringe exchange programs became a very early and you know, very sort of clear example of a harm reduction based program where we know in terms of HIV prevention or hepatitis C prevention as well, that the main risk is sharing of syringes from one person to another. The way we prevent the harm, if we're looking at focusing on HIV or bloodborne viruses, the intervention we want is to stop that sharing. So therefore, 
a way to accomplish that is to distribute sterile syringes to people who inject. Therefore, people do not have to reuse or share syringes. Therefore, we break that kind of risk chain um, that happens with sharing. Um, but of course, it was a controversial aspect because we're not looking at preventing people from injecting. We're rather looking at ways that people can inject uh, more safely and in a more healthy environment. Um, another uh, aspect that's even earlier than syringe exchange uh, is opioid substitution therapy programs such as methadone, um, which again is a <clears throat> is a oral-based uh, opioid um, used for people who are heroin dependent primarily. Uh, and again, it's a pharmaceutical medication um, that's primarily taken orally. Um, we have other ones. Buprenorphine now is another um, more recent example of this medication. Uh, and again, what it does is it's a replacement therapy. So it's for people who are heroin dependent and relying on street-based heroin. Uh, it's a way to actually move people from the street-based heroin onto a pharmaceutical opioid product. Um, and under the guidance of a prescription, of a medical doctor or a medical structure. Um, and again, with the focus on HIV prevention in this case, I mean, methadone predates HIV. Um, but again, it became very much more widespread in the context of HIV because it reduces injecting. People switch from street-based injecting heroin to um, a liquid or a pill form of an opioid substitution. Uh, it has a number of other benefits as well. It helps to stabilize people. Um, one of the, uh, I guess, the characteristics of heroin is you have sort of a much shorter half-life than you do with something like methadone. So people who inject heroin, they tend to go up and up and down, so you'll have to inject several times a day. Whereas methadone, you can take one dose and it'll keep you steady throughout the day. So you don't have the highs and lows uh, associated with heroin. You don't have the withdrawal symptoms necessarily and the, you know, sort of the pain and the discomfort uh, associated with withdrawal. Um, so it allows people to be much more stable. It allows people to, um, you know, reconnect with family, it allows people to stay out of prison, it allows people to work uh, much more much more easily than people who are involved in sort of street-based um, heroin scenes. Uh, it also very significantly connects people with health services, uh, so it has uh, increased health benefits. It gets people out of criminal drug markets, so it reduces the risk of arrest, it reduces the risk of having sort of bad drugs that you're buying on the street. Um, but it maintains a dependence. You know, so it's not about getting people off drugs. It's about, again, getting people away from street-based heroin, away from injecting, and achieving all the other kind of positive health outcomes that we know um, are achieved with um, drugs such as methadone. So this is, again, looking at some of those harms and trying to reduce them through medication. And those are the two primary areas of harm reduction that we see in terms of, I guess, sort of common understanding of harm reduction, but there's many others. Um, overdose prevention has become much more prevalent, particularly in recent years, and looking at because um, overdose is becoming a much, much bigger problem. And in many countries, deaths related to overdose actually outstrip deaths related to HIV. So we look at strategies to prevent overdose. Distribution of drugs such as naloxone, which can re reverse overdoses um, and can be administered by people you know, to their friends, uh, very effective and something that's increasing in, in popularity and acceptance. Um, things such as drug consumption rooms or safe injecting facilities, um, which we have in a number of countries in Europe have them. We have one in Canada, um, which are essentially health clinics 
um, where people can actually bring their drugs into the, the health facility and inject in the facility using um, sterile syringes under the supervision of nurses or other medical practitioners. Uh, again, and this is a way to try to reduce overdoses, to ensure people are using safe injecting equipment, and also to reduce um, the need for people to inject publicly, to inject in parks, to inject in alleyways. So, again, very successful programs, very controversial programs, because the state is providing a place for people to inject under the supervision of medical personnel. Um, but again, if we're looking at reducing the harms of, of drug use uh, and the health risks, very effective programs. Uh, so harm reduction recognizes and accepts the reality of drug use, and we seek to impl implement sort of evidence-based interventions that minimize those potential harms. Um, but significantly, and I think this is an important part for people who are working in social policy, is that harm reduction isn't just about medical interventions. Uh, harm reduction also recognizes that laws and policy frameworks can also act to promote or minimize harm. And so from a harm reduction perspective, if we're looking at policies, health policies, drug policies, criminal law policies, we obviously try to promote policies and laws that would seek to minimize health harm, community harm, other types of harm, rather than maximize them. Uh, so the three essential elements to any harm reduction approach, whether it has to do with a health intervention or with an international policy discussion, is that we're very pragmatic in what we do. We accept the world for the way it is rather than the world we might like to see. Um, we try to take an evidence-based approach to our work. Um, and significantly, harm reduction recognizes and validates the rights of people who use drugs. It doesn't see people who use drugs as criminals. It doesn't see them as problems. It doesn't see them as victims. Uh, it sees them as people, as rights bearers, as rights holders, as part of our community, and people who have specific medical needs that we need to cater to those particular needs, as we would with any other individual or any other community. Um, so why is this an important issue? As I say, harm reduction was, well, the UK was a very early harm reduction pioneer back in the 1980s. Um, but harm reduction has become an increasingly important international issue in the context, as I said, of HIV. Um, we know from the research that there's between 11 million at a low estimate and 21 million at a high estimate people who inject drugs around the world, most of them living in low and middle income countries. Um, we have about 158 countries and territories in the world that report injecting drug use, and about 120 of those also have HIV um, documented amongst people who inject. Uh, so worldwide, about 10% of new HIV infections are related to unsafe injecting drug use, and there's about 3 million people living with HIV via injecting drug use. So in terms of the HIV response, in terms of the public health response, um, issues around HIV, HIV and injecting drug use are very, very significant in many parts of the world. And harm reduction has been an increasingly accepted response, at least uh, at a national level. And we have over 90 countries that support harm reduction policy or practice. So that could be either supportive in national drug or health policy, or that could be by allowing the presence of needle and syringe programs, for example, or opioid substitution therapy. There's about 79 countries at our last count in 2012 that had needle exchange, sorry, that 82 that had needle and syringe programs, about 74 that allowed for methadone or other opioid substitution therapy. 
So harm reduction at a domestic level is increasingly becoming, you know, the dominant paradigm amongst countries that have injecting drug use. So the question then becomes, why is harm reduction so controversial? We know it works. We know it saves lives. It saves money. It reduces health harms, reduces community harms. Um, and it's effective and it's needed in many countries of the world. So why is it so controversial? Um, and it's controversial, I think, because it challenges some very fundamental paradigms around drug control and drug policy. Um, the first, obviously, is that harm reduction accepts the reality of drug use. Um, so traditionally, the paradigm around drug control has been on drug prohibition, drug prevention, drug suppression. And so because harm reduction admits and works in the reality of people and communities and nations that are drug using, um, it becomes at its very face sort of a challenge to the dominant um, kind of status quo. Uh, as I said before, harm reduction also has a focus on law and policy, not just programs. So harm reduction necessarily poses a challenge to sort of repressive laws and repressive policies that would have the impact of stigmatizing and marginalizing people who use drugs, driving them underground, making their drug use more risky to themselves and to the community at large. And also, I mean, in many countries of the world, we have to recognize that people who use drugs are demonized by politicians, by the press, by the general public, stigmatized, marginalized. Harm reduction embraces, you know, the inherent rights and personhood of people who use drugs. So that in and of itself becomes uh, a challenge to the status quo. And also, in that sense, harm reduction is a challenge to almost over a hundred years of international law. I mean, international drug control law dates back to 1912. Um, and from the very beginning, international drug control law has focused really on two main agendas. Um, one is to sort of limit access of controlled substances to what would be seen as legitimate purposes, medical purposes, scientific purposes. Um, and that's been done through administrative structures that, again, are 100 years old, sort of importing and exporting regulations, prescription laws, um, scheduling um, about you know, different, like we have in the UK, we have Class A, Class B, Class C drugs. We have that in international treaties as well, or something parallel to that. Um, and looking at various national and international administrative structures um, to limit the production and the distribution of controlled drugs. That's part of it. But the other part of international law has always been around the suppression of drugs, primarily using the criminal law. And this is where we get into a lot of the problems related to, I think, promoting bad public health policy, uh, but also fundamentally undermining human rights in many cases. Um, so international drug control law really begins in 1909 um, with the first meeting of states of the International Opium Commission, which comes up with a bunch of recommendations, later gets enshrined in the first International Convention on Drugs in 1912. Um, under the auspices of the League of Nations beginning in the 1920s, we get three other major drug control conventions, 1925, 1931, and 1936. Um, of course, the League of Nations falls apart during World War II. Um, then in 1946, uh, the United Nations is founded. Um, so under the United Nations, the modern system of international law, um, we have three drug control conventions. Um, 
people will be forgiven if they don't know that. I've given lectures at law schools where the professors have no idea that there's actually international drug control treaties. Um, well, there are. Um, I won't bore you with the details of them, um, except to say that they're almost universally ratified, which means almost every country in the world has ratified at least one of the drug control treaties. Um, the first of these was um, is just over 50 years old, was adopted in 1961. And the 1961 convention essentially takes all the previous treaties under the League of Nations and adopts them under the UN framework. Then we have a second one in 1971. The 61 convention is basically about plant-based drugs. It focuses on opium cannabis and sort of cocaine derivatives. The one in 71 focuses on probably what today would be known as new psychoactive substances. Um, but basically pharmaceutical-based drugs. You know, obviously in the 1960s we have a lot of drugs coming out being produced in laboratories rather than being grown in fields and cultivated. Um, so there's this convention on psycho psychotropic substances. And then in 1988 we have um, the really big criminalization um, convention, uh, convention against illicit traffic. Um, and there are already, already criminal provisions in the two earlier treaties, but the 1988 treaty is basically all about criminal provisions related to drugs. And it's interesting that sort of the conflict in international drug control law has always really fascinated me. Because even historically, there's been this tug back and forth between, on the one hand, what the international community has portrayed as a humanitarian effort, is that, you know, they see drugs as this awful... So you see, see the same language you hear today, drugs is a scourge, drugs is this and that. Well, if you read the early documents, and even not you know, League of Nations documents, but even the UN documents, there is this idea that suppressing drugs is a common humanitarian effort of the international community. Um, and this is reflected in, say, the first UN Drug Control Treaty, certainly, where the opening lines of the drug control, this 1961 Drug Control Convention, is that, you know, the parties concerned with the health and welfare of mankind. Uh, so it sort of sets this kind of noble sort of umbrella. Where the purpose of this is to promote the health and welfare of humankind. Um, but it's always interesting to me, that sounds very nice, that sort of human rights language, I can connect with that. You know, I'm a public health person as much as I'm a, a law reform person. So health and welfare, we can all get behind that, that sounds good. Um, but immediately following that in the preambular section as well, um, it says, I'll read from the convention, recognizing that addiction to narcotic drugs constitutes a serious evil for the individual and is fraught with social and economic danger to mankind. States are conscious of their duty to prevent and combat this evil, and that effective measures against abuse of narcotics drugs requires coordinated and universal action. So you have this tension at the very beginning. At the one hand, you have this humanitarian health and welfare kind of thing. But on the other hand, you're declaring almost like this fight, this universal coordinated fight against evil. So drugs are evil. Yeah, Felix? Just a very short question. Is there an actual distinction between abuse and use in that context? Uh, this is one of the many articles I started writing but never finished. Um, actually, <laughs> actually, drug abuse is not actually defined anywhere in the international drug control system, even though drug abuse appears repeatedly throughout it. It's not defined anywhere. But any use is prohibited yeah, but I say, but they don't—they don't actually define right, it, which, abuse as as which is interesting to me because 
like any treaty, at the very beginning, it's Article 2, I think, in the drug conventions, they have a what they call a definition section. We have like whatever, what are the common terms or the common words that appear throughout this treaty? We'll have a definition so people know what they mean. So they, they have definitions of illicit traffic. They'll say illicit traffic is traffic contrary to the provisions of the convention. But they don't define abuse. Actually, I do a presentation. There's about 12 different terms within the drug treaties that they use to define consumption of drugs. They have, off the top of my head, they have drug use, they have misuse, they have abuse, they have illicit use, they have traditional use, they have medical use, scientific use, quasi-medical use. <laughs> what else? There's another form of traditional use, illicit, no, anyway. But just like, they don't define any of them, but they all kind of refer in one way or another to consuming substances under some form of international control. Some are okay and some are not. Um, but yeah, so, anyway, so this context of... Yeah, the, we want to promote health and welfare through this convention, but we're also recognizing that what we're doing is fighting a form of evil. And sort of putting on my international law hat, that really interested me. So I sort of thought, you know, evil is a very odd word to see in, written in law. You, know, you hear it all the time in sort of the jargon of drugs, but it's like it's not really a legal, like evil's not a legal term. It's like maybe a philosophical term or a theological or religious concept or, you know, a literary concept. It's not really a legal concept. Yeah, so I sort of went in, I sort of thought, well, what are some other kind of systems or activities that the international community thinks are abhorrent? And how are they described in international treaties? And so I looked at the Slavery Convention from 1926. The Slavery Convention doesn't describe slavery as being evil. Uh, the Genocide Convention of 1948 doesn't describe genocide as evil. Um, the Treaty on Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons doesn't describe nuclear annihilation as evil. Um, the Apartheid Convention didn't describe apartheid as evil. And the Torture Convention doesn't describe torture as evil. I think the, the closest any of them get, I think the Genocide Convention refers to genocide as odious or something like that. <laughs> Which I think is fair enough, you know. Um, but there's not, none of them are evil. So, again, so it's very strange. And this gets in, I mean, it's a, it's a joke in a sense, but it does actually have implications in terms of policy. Particularly as we get into the 1980s and what people kind of describe as more kind of the war on drugs kind of rhetoric. Um, just a quote here from this, this is the UN Political Declaration on Drugs that was agreed at the UN General Assembly special session that year. Um, so this is something coming out of a General Assembly resolution. Drugs are a grave threat to the health and well-being of all mankind, the independence of states, democracy, the stability of nations, the structure of all societies, and the dignity and hope of millions of people and their families. You know, so, again, as a harm reductionist, and I'm coming in, I'm sort of saying, hey, we have to do some health programs for people who use drugs. And it's like, well, does that mean you're against democracy, stable nations, and the structure of society? <laughs> So it's no surprise, really, I suppose, that harm reduction becomes controversial when you have this kind of apocalyptic language. And again, these are international documents, but we can all point to individual countries, you know, including this one. I mean, the current government here is not particularly friendly to harm reduction. And lots of political parties and politicians run on, you know, political platforms that demonize drug use and drug trafficking and drug users. Um, and we're going to get tough on drugs for this election because the past party was too soft on drugs. 
Um, so this kind of language gets replicated at domestic level too. So it has real implications, as I said, for those policy frameworks, those criminal law frameworks um, that affect people who use drugs and communities. So I guess that's sort of my last point. So what does harm reduction then tell us about the link between international human rights law on the one hand and international drug control law? Um, and this is where I get to this, this phrase that's not my own phrase that I used in the beginning of the, the presentation of parallel universes. And this is actually a, a phrase or a concept that um, was coined by Professor Paul Hunt, who's a professor uh, at the Human Rights Center at the University of Essex. And Professor Hunt previously served as the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Health, so essentially the UN Special Representative on the Right to Health. And he got sort of interested in harm reduction issues near the end of his, of his, his term in office. And this is sort of a, something he said in his speech, where, on the, where he was commenting on sort of the disconnect within the United Nations around drugs and human rights and health. Um, because on the one hand, I mean, the UN is in a bit of a sort of a split personality kind of thing, because on the one hand, it's the the international organization mandated to sort of spread human rights around the world, and we have international human rights treaties agreed under the auspices of the UN, and everyone sort of sees that as one of the UN's core missions. But it's also the international organization mandated with moving forward drug control around the world and suppressing drugs around the world. And so what happens in those instances where activities to suppress drugs violate human rights. And this is something we do a lot of work on at Harm Reduction International, and it's something that our, um, the Human Rights Center at the University of Essex, where I'm affiliated with, does a lot of work on. And Professor Hunt was talking specifically in the context of harm reduction, um, where he would say, well, he would go to the, in the human rights institutions of the UN are based in Geneva. And he says, well, I'll go there and I'll talk to delegates of countries, and then I'll be talking about you know, HIV prevention and human rights and the right to health. And then I'll go to Vienna, where the drug control arms of the UN are based. And this representatives of the very same governments will be opposing harm reduction because you have this kind of split diplomatic approach. You know, what, you know the Geneva institutions support human rights, the Vienna institutions support drug control. And for a long time, and I think you still get this, if you go to Vienna and try to talk about human rights, they'll say, well, we don't do that here. We, that happens in Geneva. <laughs> And it used to be the case too, it's always less so now, but it's still, still a reality where you go to human rights institutions and say, well, we want to talk about drugs, and they say, we don't do drugs. The drug stuff happens in Vienna. And so that's why Professor Hunt talked about this idea of parallel universes. It's like you're talking to the same institution. You're talking to the same government. You know, it might be in different individual representatives, but they have diametrically different positions. And harm reduction is a very good example of this. So within UN documentation, we have explicit support for harm reduction um, in resolutions from the UN General Assembly, from UNAIDS, the umbrella body that works on HIV issues, the World Health Organization, the UN Development Program, UNICEF, um, and also, increasingly, human rights bodies. Professor Hunt was important in starting to pioneer this, and we did a lot of work on it as well, um, where we've actually succeeded in getting international jurisprudence recognizing access to harm reduction as a component element of the right to health. Um, and that's been recognized by the High Commissioner for Human Rights. It's been recognized by multiple human rights bodies within the United Nations. Um, but when you get to Vienna, you go to the Commission on Narcotic Drugs, which is the highest policy-making body on drugs within the UN. 
they don't accept harm reduction. They've never actually been able to agree harm reduction support in a resolution of the Commission on Narcotic Drugs. Um, and it's a fight every year. <laughs> because you have certain countries that are very supportive of harm reduction. You have certain countries that hate harm reduction. It's always a big fight. They have to agree a consensus resolution so it gets dropped. And that's happening again at the moment. There's going to be a big UN General Assembly special session on drugs in 2016 that they're agreeing the political declaration for. So that crazy paragraph I read from 1988 about stability of nations and this sort of thing, um, they're agreeing the next, well, not the next one, they're agreeing another one for 2016. And there's a big fight over whether we include harm reduction again. Um, the International Narcotics Control Board, which is the sort of body of independent experts set up by the drug conventions to kind of monitor the drug conventions. They give kind of grudging support for harm reduction. Um, um, the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, which is sort of the operational arm of the UN on drug control issues, um, again is a bit split. On the one hand, they're part of UNAIDS, um, and they have the mandate actually to work on injecting drug use issues related to HIV within the UNAIDS family, as they call it. Um, and at a sort of a, in many cases at a country level, you see UN Office on Drugs and Crime being very vocal in supporting harm reduction, helping to set up pilot programs. A lot of their international guidance documents around harm reduction are very, very good. Um, but they have an executive director who can't say the words. He's a Russian diplomat. Russian, Russia is one of the biggest obstacles to harm reduction internationally. And he's, he's the former UK ambassador here. He's, he, he was the UK ambassador when that, that Russian um, fella got killed with the plutonium. You know, he was the guy who took the heat for that <laughs> from the UK government. So he's a serious, he's a serious figure within sort of Russian diplomacy. Um, and for various reasons, he's not willing to support harm reduction publicly. So even though at an operational level and a secretariat level, the UN Office on Drugs and Crime does some good things on harm reduction. At a political level, they can't do it. So you see the disconnect even within that particular institution. And so, I mean, harm reduction is a very interesting example of that. And I think the reason for that tension, I mean, gets back to those, that sort of split personality within the drug conventions. Is it, a, is it a framework of international drug control law that's to promote health and welfare, or is it to combat evil? And say harm reduction sits in the middle of that because, actually, I don't think so. Harm reduction falls over very strongly on the health and welfare side rather than the evil side. Um, but that's just one example. I mean, other areas of human rights related to drugs, I mean, we can talk about many of them. We Something I've done a lot of work on and our organization has is, is the issue of the death penalty for drug offenses. And again, here's something where we see a big split in international law, where in international human rights law, the relevant bodies and authorities have said definitively that drug crimes of any nature do not meet the threshold for capital punishment. Capital punishment isn't absolutely prohibited in international human rights law for a variety of diplomatic negotiating reasons. Um, but in order for it to be legal, it has to reach a certain threshold of severity, um, which is an interpretive threshold. Um, but it, the way it's been interpreted by the relevant authorities is that drug crimes of any nature do not meet that threshold. Um, but still, we have 30-some-odd countries in the world that have capital punishment for drugs in domestic legislation. Um, one of the bits of work I did a few years ago actually documented an increase in the number of countries bringing in death penalty legislation after the ratification of the 1988 Drug Control Treaty. 
which is the one that brings in all the harsh criminal laws. So, you know, I was never able to go back individually to those countries and sort of see what was the domestic argument, but you can see it on a graph. And it's interesting because this happened at the same period of time when support for the death penalty internationally was going down. So it makes an interesting graph because overall at that period of time in the 1980s, you know, the, the number of countries with the death penalty, the graph goes down like this. The number of countries with the death penalty for drugs goes up like this. Um, but clearly in violation of international human rights law. Uh, and in fairness, in recent years, the UN Office on Drugs and Crime has spoken out um, quite strongly against the use of the death penalty, um, largely based on some of our advocacy. But I'll give you an example, the International Narcotics Control Board, again, which is sort of the, the legal body which oversees the drug control treaties, there's a high court case, a, come on, a Supreme Court case in India going forward at the moment um, that we've been providing a bit of advice to the lawyers who are bringing it forward. It's challenging the death penalty for drugs in Indian law. And the government in that case is saying that, well, the International Narcotics Control Board has never spoken out against the death penalty for drugs. So therefore, from their perspective, it must be legal under the drug conventions, which is kind of irrelevant, really. Um, but our colleagues in India sort of sent a letter to the International Narcotics Control Board sort of saying, you know, your silence on this issue is being used as support at the Supreme Court. You know, do you have a comment on this? Could you clarify? They never even responded to the email, you know. Um, so, um, but again, that's an area where you can see the politics and the diplomacy and the human rights and drug control mandates all mixing together to make this kind of unpleasant um, concoction. Um, but say, but interestingly, I mean, I think through the work of our organization and a small number of others and a growing number of others, um, we're seeing increasing attention to issues of related to human rights and drug control, um, not just harm reduction. I mean. Uh, I mean, harm reduction is an interesting case in point because we think because of the reasons I explained at the beginning. I mean, harm reduction has always been driven by sort of a human rights-based approach, uh, even when people didn't maybe articulate it in those terms. As I said, it's always been driven by a fundamental recognition that people who use drugs are part of our community; they should not be marginalized and stigmatized. You know, they have a right to access health care. Um, so say harm reduction has always been driven by those kind of principles at its core. Um, the thing that our organization and a small number of others have done more recently is to try to take those principles and apply them in international and national legal frameworks. And how do we take constitutional principles around human rights or how do we take international legal principles and try to structure support for harm reduction using those elements. Um, not that that's a magic bullet, obviously, in terms of trying to get harm reduction implemented, but as advocacy tools, it just, it's just another tool in our argumentation. Um, and for many years, harm reduction has been advocated for pretty much exclusively on public health grounds, which has been very effective and you know, is very true. It's, very, it's an evidence-based approach, which has been very successful in countries where it's been uh, mainstreamed. Um, but the human rights-based approach offers other opportunities to try to get um, attention to harm reduction. And I say that has been very useful to us when we started articulating harm reduction in human rights terms. That was when we could get a conversation with the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, for example. That's when we could start engaging with human rights mechanisms at the European level or at the United Nations level. Um, 
to try to get other voices and because we knew that the drug control mechanisms in Vienna were inherently conservative, were not, for a variety of reasons, were never going to embrace harm reduction really publicly. Um, but the UN is a big family, so how can we bring other bodies of the UN to bear? We shouldn't just leave it all to the sort of drug control end of the UN to be the, the judge and jury when it comes to harm reduction as an international approach. Um, so using human rights language has been a way to open discussions with other branches of the UN who would have before have shied away because they'd say drug control is not our mandate. And we say, well, no, but human rights is your mandate. Human rights is a core guiding principle of the United Nations as an international organization. So these are the human rights rationales. This is how the human rights mandate and drugs intersects with your mandate as a UN agency. And this is why you should be vocal about this. You should not leave these issues. You should not leave issues of you know, whether that's issues around prisons, whether that's issues around drug use, whether that's issues around women and children who use drugs, whether that's issues around migrants who use drugs, um, whether it's related to international relations and crop eradication and environmental law as it affects drug control. You know, I mean, drugs is really a cross-cutting issue when you look at public policy. Um, and so I think one of the challenges in terms of you know, harm reduction generally, but drug policy reform as well, is trying to get as many sort of policy areas and legal areas as possible to look at how drugs intersects on their particular mandate. Um, because, I mean, drugs is primarily seen, obviously, as a security and law enforcement issue. Um, maybe a bit as a health issue increasingly in, in a lot of countries now, um, but still it's much broader than that. And I think for, for areas of social policy and, and law, there's just so many areas that need to be pushed forward. And a harm reduction philosophy, as I said at the beginning, becomes a very useful template for how to look at broader issues of policy and law um, as they benefit everyone. So I think I've talked for long enough, and I'm out of slides. So thank you very much, and hopefully hear some of you talk now rather than me. So. <laughs> thank you.